Turn your Bibles to, um, to Job chapter 13, and we want to continue in our uh, study of the book of Job. And as we do that, let me make sure I have all my, my business out here. <clears throat> as we do that, <clears throat> you got to forgive me, my voice is fading. Um, our Royal um, High School, which is the high school that our, our kids have all gone to, or, or one of them will eventually go to, um, the boys' volleyball team was in the CIF state championship game yesterday. So I was yelling my head off, and then, uh, man, we lost in the fifth set by, two po- and by the smallest margin that you could lose by, and uh, um, 15 to 13. But, man, they, they battled, and it, it was such a good game. So my voice is gone. As Dr. Thomas, my Greek professor, used to say, I was in the flesh last night. <laughs> For him, he was cheering on his Georgetown all right, uh, his Georgetown basketball team, and uh, yesterday we were cheering our local high school. But let's come back here, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take the raspiness of voices and the fatigue of, uh, of, of our minds, and we'll set them aside so that we might think upon how God has uh, used Job, this godly man, a real man, um, to great purposes for all the people of faith in the future. I mentioned that he's a real man because it's sometimes easy for us to think of the circumstances of Job's life as something of a fable, right? As almost a myth. Uh, in fact, I think most of, uh, um, of your unbelieving co-workers, friends, and family members have probably heard of Job. And if you say, hey, you know the story of Job? They do. They know how badly he suffered. They might not know all the details, but they know that he had lost everything, including his children, including his livelihood, including his home, including his health. They know that he lost a lot and he suffered greatly, but in the end, he got a whole bunch of stuff back. And they would be entirely missing the bulk of the book of Job, its message, and Job's point of having gone through all that. The end result is not really the main part of the story. The most important thing that happens is not Job was restored to all of his good fortune, his family, etc. Now the most significant parts are the parts in between. And so I mentioned that he is real because this is a real person. A godly man, in the opening chapters, whether it's the author subscribing to him blamelessness and uprightness, or it's God the Father declaring from his throne that, have you considered my servant Job a blameless and upright man? It is affirmed by all those who have seen his life that this is a good, godly, faithful person. So the question, well, why would all of these bad things happen to such an individual, such a real individual, a genuinely godly individual who walked in a manner that honored the Lord, why and how did all of this happen? And that's what's being unpacked. The question of, not just the question of why, as if there is a solution that will settle all of this, but the reality of wanting to ask because this hurts. Because all of us, all of us, by default, have a sense of justice because we're image bearers. And that sense of justice drives us to believe that in, as a whole, in general, if I'm a good person, I would naturally expect good things. And if that guy's a bad person, I'm kind of expecting bad things. That's the system. And that's the system that is 
so monolithic in the eyes of Job's friends that they can't get beyond that. So they're saying, Job, we came to, to sympathize, to be compassionate to you because you're our friend. But as we see the extent of everything that has taken place, we're beginning to suspect that there's something deeper. Right? This kind of depth of suffering doesn't come into the life of the good and faithful man. This is deep. And so seeing the circumstances, they're extrapolating back and saying, according to our system, right, our, our very binary, good gets good, bad gets bad, you must be very, very bad. And m- you must have been hiding that particularly well. That has been the argument of the three friends as they've unpacked it. And Job has pushed back on that, proclaiming his innocence from anything that deserves that kind of divine retribution. But as we'll see in, uh, in Job uh, 13.20 through 14.22, Job is going to let them know that he is not claiming that he is sinless, just blameless, right? Just innocent regarding deserving this kind of earthly pain. I remind you of a couple things theologically. One, none of the friends nor Job ever think of God's sovereignty, his providence, right, as being minimized. They all believe that this is happening because God is making this happen. Job says it again and again. Their friends say it again and again. This is, there is no argument here in the book of Job about God is really powerful, but he sometimes allows all kinds of stuff to enter in. No, in fact, Job's questioning of why this is happening is precisely because God is the one pouring this into his life. It is from his hand, so that's why he's asking. If it's random, if God just kind of randomly allows things to just happen and, and the weather to change and for tragedies to occur regularly without his hand upon it, there's nothing really to ask. It's just, oh, Lord, we just accept it because this is how messed up the world is. Now, Job wants to know because he knows that God is in charge. And because he's in charge, he would like to know where his hope should lie and how he should react to this life. There's a, uh, we looked as a whole, because this is uh, the, the end of the third, si- of the, sorry, the end of the first cycle. Three friends have spoken to Job. Job has responded to two of them so far. And after the third one, it's his long monologue that is addressed partly to his friends, which is the first part. Your system doesn't work, right? Chapter 12, verses 1 through 25. And then the second part, your system is dangerous. It's dangerous to you because if you're wrong, You are accusing God of pouring out justice, and that's not what he's doing. If you are wrong, you're accusing me, a blameless man, of being guilty, and you are wrong. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul says repeatedly, if if we are wrong about the resurrection, it's not just that we are wrong about some idea. Everything we teach is false, and we are pitiful. The most to be pitied in life. And so the idea is if you are wrong, this is dangerous to you because God doesn't play games. He doesn't appreciate his reputation being smeared. 
He doesn't allow for those to speak against him and, and just kind of let things ha happen or let things slide. It is a dangerous thing that your system is implying, that your demands of self-righteousness and how you apply your own sense of righteousness is a dangerous thing for you right, and for those that follow you. And then we look today at the last part. Remember, the, the, the long title of this message is, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. And that comes from the earlier part of, of uh, chapter 13. But, but we will look, and let me jam us through here a little bit. We'll look, um, starting here at uh, point three, I will hope in him. So let me read it to you, because it's always helpful for us to kind of get a good reading, and then we'll come back. We'll read kind of quickly, so forgive the cadence here. Um, starting in uh, um, chapter 13, uh, verse 20. Only grant me two things, then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call, and I will answer, or let me speak, and you reply to me. How many are my inequities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the inequities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And you and do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass, look away from him and leave him alone that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. For there is hope for a tree if it be cut down, that it will sprout again and that its shoots will not cease." Though its root, root grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again till the heavens are no more. He will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. For then you would number my steps, you would not keep watch over my sin, my transgression would be sealed up in a bag, and you would cover over my iniquity. But the mountain falls and crumbles away, and the rock is removed from its place, the waters wear away the stones, the torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man, you prevail forever against him, and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, and he does not know it. They are brought low, and he perceives it not. He feels only the pain of his own body, and he mourns only for himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we come to examine the hope and the hopelessness that we find in Job, 
We see a semblance of that in each one of us. Maybe not in this moment. Maybe in this moment, many of us are exuberant in hope. And we thank you for the good things that have been happening to so many, whether there are weddings that will be taking place, births that we look forward to, um, graduations that will happen or have, have happened, or completion of, of certain cycles of, of, of academics or of uh, work projects or fellowship, or gathering. I mean, there's so many things that we can find hope and delight in. And at the same time, in our humanness, and in the frailty of this life, we recognize there's so many things in those same categories that we struggle to find hope in. Whether it's the loss of a loved one, whether it's the diminishment of hope for marriage or for children, whether it's the, the, the breaking of, of our hearts over sin, over individuals who are not walking with the Lord. Lord, we could go down the line and recognize at any given instance, there is a million things to praise you for and a million things for us to be broken over. We are thankful that in your omniscience, in your omnipotence, you know these all. And that you are able to juggle both joy and delight and pain and suffering all in one wise effort to bring glory to yourself and to make yourself known. So Lord, as as we think about hope and we think about Job's hope, may there be a gospel application to our own lives to either turn to you to find a hope that will not fade or at least to turn to you and find a hope that will make us resilient until that coming day when we'll lay these these pains down. We praise you and we thank you and ask that you would invite us in to your presence to understand your word now. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. That statement um, in 13 verse 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face is meant to be a statement that I think uh, encapsulates Job's thinking about what he's going through. When he says, though you slay me, though he slay me, I think Job is acknowledging that the depth of how bad things have gotten, he anticipates he's going to die soon. And though he is going to die, yet he will find his hope in the very God that's poured all of this suffering into his life. See, you got to remember God's sovereignty and the way that Job rightly understands it. We last week, we said that the difference, and we use sovereignty kind of generally, and that's okay, to speak of God's providence, that he is in control of everything. That is true. But sovereignty, as opposed to providence, providence means that he, he does control everything. He brings everything to where he wants it to go. But sovereignty implies not just that he has that, that he uses his powers to that degree, but that he can do it in whichever way he chooses. It implies a freedom, and Job recognizes that. And because he recognizes that, he says, Lord, I think you're going to kill me, but I'm still going to hope in you. You see, that, that is a helpful designation for us. But that doesn't mean that it's easy for him. In fact, he says over and over again, I want to make my case before my God. And so when we begin to talk about Job's hope in him, 
we start in chapter 13, verse 20 to 22. By the way, the reason why we break here at chapter 13, verse 20, is because at verse 20, Job is now discussing things with the Lord. As Job often does, in fact, he does it every time that he responds to his friends, he begins by responding to them, and then he starts speaking to the Lord. He has this natural instinct to believe that his friends need an answer, but the most important thing is that he needs to speak to the Lord. And so he does that again starting in verse 20. Only grant me two things, he says, then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me and let not dread of you terrify me, then call and I will answer or let me speak and you reply to me. His opening request to God is a little respite and a response. A respite and a response. By respite, I mean that last part, verse 22, then call and I will, oh sorry, verse 21, withdraw your hand far from me and let not dread of you terrify me. Verse 20 says, I'm going to ask you just two things. Then I will not hide myself from your face. Meaning that I will be open and I'll be before you and everything will be exactly what it should be, face-to-face, relational, and enjoyment of one another. He says, give me just two things. One is verse 21, withdraw your hand far from me and let not dread of you terrify me. The second is verse 22, then call and I will answer or let me speak and you reply to me. The first is respite. Give me just a moment where you withdraw your hand far from me. See, this is him talking about God's sovereignty, and this sovereignty is not comfortable, nor is it safe. It doesn't, God doesn't guarantee, nor does he owe you a perfectly healthy and happy life. This is exactly what Job is understanding. And so he is literally requesting God, can you give me a moment of respite? Can you pull your hand, not a hand necessarily of judgment, but a hand of suffering, can you pull that from me for a moment? And then look at the second part of verse 20. And let not dread of you terrify me. The language of that <clears throat> suggests that it is not just the physical, but it is the terror, it is the pain, it is the, it is the understanding, the emotionally overwhelming sense of dread that he is suffering. And he's saying, Lord, could you lift that burden for a little bit? And many of you here might have one time requested a similar thing of the Lord. Can you just lift, give me a moment to catch my breath. Can we have a respite, right, from all the pain and the difficulty of the present trial? So that's his first request. The second is, in, is him just saying, and can we talk? Can I get a response? He says, then call and I will answer, or the second part in verse 22, or let me speak and you reply to me. He is saying, Lord, I could go either way. You call me or I call you. I just want to talk. I just want to engage. I think he's expressing a couple things. One is something that we would all commonly recognize, that in the midst of trial and pain, we feel like God is distant. He's not more distant when we are in our pain Right? And I'm not going to give you the old footprints in the sand stuff. That's, that's good stuff. I don't mind that. Right? I'm just saying, he is not more distant in the midst of our suffering right, than in the midst of our blessing. We're just more exuberant when things are good. Right? When we're celebrating, 
because God has been so good to us. It just got, the Lord feels near to us because that's exactly what we imagine in our minds that the Lord is supposed to do. To just pour blessing and blessing and joy into our lives. And so as long as that's happening, he feels so near. But he is not further when you are in pain. I think in the end, that's what Job begins to leverage. That his sovereignty means that this isn't a random act of pain. This isn't some random act of terrorism. It's not a random act of suffering or tragedy. God has done this. But because it is God who has done this, I know there's an end. There's a period. There's a purpose. And so this is Job filling that out and trying to think, Lord, I just want to make sense of this. I'm not saying you have to tell me exactly something that I can't even fathom as a human being. I just need to know what's going on. Why is this happening? And it's a request that they might open a dialogue and bring God near. But in fact, as we all suffer, as we all recognize in our suffering, God is never more distant. God has always been near. This is Job reaching out trying to understand and reclaim hope. And part of that is a request for respite and response. <clears throat> the next section of his request to the Lord or his, his prayer unto the Lord speaks of what sin deserves in verses 23 to 28. So far, Job has been declaring himself to be blameless. And, and we have made the emphasis that he is not declaring himself sinless just that he is blameless for a retribution that looks like killing my kids, destroying my home, making me break out and, and failing health and slowly suffering and eventually dying. He says this in verse 23 as an acknowledgement of sin and sinfulness in his life and the life of all human beings. He says, how many are my iniquities and my sins make me know my transgression and my sin? In other words, if it's true or even partially true of what my friends are accusing me of, that there is some hidden sin that has been in some way a trigger to some of these things, then would you let me know? Is it my inequities and my sins? What, what is it that I deserve and what is it that sin deserves? Make me know my transgression and my sin. In verse 24, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? We sang Psalm uh, 67, right? We, we sang it, right? 62? No, 62. Like, like, we read Psalm 67. My apologies. Yeah, we got confused there. And, and, and Psalm 67 talks or quotes from number six, this idea that the Lord blesses and keeps us, that the Lord makes his face shine upon us to be gracious to us. Wonderful words. The idea and the picture of those words is that when God's face shines upon us, we feel the warmth of his love and his blessing. And this is what Job is saying seems to be lacking. And this is why we always feel like God is distant when things are not going well. He said, why are you hiding your face? And he means his face a blessing. Why do you count me as an enemy? Why do you treat me like I'm bad? And you see, he's walking this through because he recognizes that he does have iniquity and sin. If he didn't recognize that, he wouldn't have the faithfulness of sacrificing on a regular basis to the Lord. 
He is always in recognition of his mortal state, of his sinful life. And he thinks he is a penitent and faithful person who doesn't pretend he's righteous, but knows that he's a sinner who has the mercy of the Lord. So he's saying, so if that's the case, then why all of a sudden do you withhold your compassion and count me as your enemy? Verse 25, for you write, oh, I'm sorry, you, will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? You see the picture he makes. He's saying like, you know, a, a, a dried leaf that's falling off the tree and the wind kind of drives it and blows it. Do you really need to break that? Right? Or, or put another way, he says, he says dry chaff. So you get, you know, the, the, the wheat at harvest and you get, you know, you, you get the grains and then you have, to, you have to grind it a little bit. So the chaff, the outside shell, the, you know, the flaky parts, like the husk of corn, that, that after you rub it and you throw it in the air, the wind drives the chaff, the stuff you're not going to eat, the stuff that you want, it drives it away, right? And he's saying, are you, are you chasing to burn up the dry chaff? You get what he's saying? He's saying there's an element where he is already broken. He's a driven leaf, a dry chaff. Why are you chasing me down? Why are you basically kicking a dead horse, Right? Verse 26, for you write bitter things against me. This is again talking about his providence that he is writing down in the book of reality these things that must happen in the life of Job. Bitter things, things that hurt, things that are hard to swallow. He is writing them down into my life. He says, make me inherit the and, and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. In other words, why are you carrying over sins deserving as if to add on top of everything else? Look, Whatever else the Old Testament saints believed um, about sin and about the afterlife, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, right? They recognized their sinfulness and that their only hope of blessing and future and eternity was that God was going to forgive them. That's it. Faith is much like our faith. They didn't know the person of Christ. They didn't know about a crucifixion to come but they had enough that they knew that sin deserved punishment and death. So how could the faithful live? How could those that love God, how could they look forward with any hope? The righteous live by faith. Yes, that is a Galatian statement. That is a Roman statement. But that begins, right, in Habakkuk, in the Old Testament. That that is the nature of the genuinely righteous person. That they don't make themselves righteous. They live a life that is dependent upon what God does in his mercy towards them. Because there's things that they deserve. But God has been very kind to them. And this is what he's trying to say. He's saying, there are sins, even in my youth, that follow me. But regardless of all of that, you have been merciful to me. So why does it feel like now you're making me inherit all of that here? He says, you put my feet in stocks and watch all my paths. You set limits for the soles of my feet. Man wastes away like a rotten, rot, like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. He says all this to say, it's almost like you've imprisoned me and that you set limit on my footsteps, right? 
you're, you're chasing me. You're pursuing dry chaff. You are watching my direction, my paths, set a limit on everything that I can enjoy. And you are doing this when it feels like in judgment. When a human being, and this is the last part of verse 28, he's saying, man, waste away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is mothed. And he said, we as mortals are already dying. We're on our way down. You, do you feel like you still need to watch and, and catalog and to destroy us as we're falling? That's really what he's acknowledging. He acknowledges the, rea- the reality of sinfulness and how life was meant to be withering away because we live a life that is touched by sin. But as a worshiper of God, as a follower of Yahweh, he thought he was good with God that God's face would shine upon him and that God's mercy and favor, right, abided with him. And the question is, is he wrong? That's what he's asking. That's what he needs to know. What is it that sin deserves? Is he getting exactly what he always deserved in the first place? Third, all right, in Job's prayer to the Lord, not only is he requesting respite and response, and he's trying to figure out what it is his sin deserves. But he talks about his, his life and human life in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 14 as being brief and troublesome. Brevity and trouble is life. Look at the first verse, one that you may have uh, heard, at least that second phrase before. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. Few of days and full of trouble. There is a brevity, a shortness to human existence. And not only is it short, but most of it is filled with great amounts of difficulties, great amounts of pain. Uh, German Lutheran pastor Helmut Thieklick, right? When he had heard um, someone say that in an entire life, there's probably not more than about one month of actual real happiness, right? After he heard that, he says, I believe that portion, proportion would hold true in history as a whole. He says, the happy times are like tiny islands in an ocean of blood and tears. The history of the world taken as a whole is a story of war, deeply marked with the hoofprints of an apocalyptic horseman, it is the story of humanity without a father, so it seems. And then he goes on to talk about why there is a father and that in his, in his providence and in his sovereignty, he is working all things for his greater glory and for our ultimate good. And even when we think about that, that Romans eight twenty eight verse, right? I think our emphasis very often is on don't worry, God's working this for you. Good. You're going to get some good from this. You're going to get some good. That's ancillary. That's the byproduct of he is working all things to his glory. And when he is glorified, when we suffer and die, and we are raised in newness of life with him, we will be glorified with him. It is in his glory that we are, as a byproduct, we are going to enjoy glory in all that is good in our lives. So we got to be careful not to hear that verse as meaning that in this life, things will turn around and everything will get good. It may in God's mercy, but it's not guaranteed. 
I imagine that in heaven we'll meet so many saints who suffered most of their life as a Christian and then died in the midst of their suffering but find moments of joy like what what, uh, Theolik is talking about. That it was like these small islands of hope and delight and joy in this world surrounded by blood, sweat, and tears, right? But nevertheless, that they found that the Lord is enough and that God had guided them through and when all was done, instead of island hopping, they got to the shores of the new heavens and the new earth. This is what is happening. He's talking about the brevity of life, recognizing it. He's saying man is born of a woman, a man who is born of a woman. And who is that? Well, every, every man, every human being is born of a woman. Right? There's few days full of trouble. Verse 2, he says, He comes out like a flower and withers. And he flees like a shadow and continues not. He's describing the the brevity and the shortness of a human life. And he says, do you, verse 3, do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? He's saying, if you know that the human condition is so brief that there is a moment like a flower that comes out and then immediately starts to wither, that he is like a shadow and the sun is coming up and he starts to fade. Are you opening your eyes upon me to bring me into judgment with you? There's no comparison. God's judgment is always going to be right. There's always some sin that he can point to. You guys realize there's always some sin that he could point to. The fact that I'm standing here able to, to speak to you about what God's word says is a tremendous act of mercy on God's part. If he wanted to bring me into judgment, he could. He wanted to judge me right now, he could. If he wanted to open up the ground and just eat me up, he could. Right? And each one of you is the same. Every day, every day that has any kind of good and breath and life and enjoyment, every day is a blessing to us that we did not deserve. So Job's point is, is this is the reality of a troublesome and difficult sin-filled life. You open your eyes and you could judge me instantly. But do you need to? I'm already headed that way. Verse 4. Who can bring a clean thing out of unclean? There is not one. Does that sound familiar to you? Job is saying, we are of unclean things. Can someone make an unclean thing a clean thing? Can you bring cleanness out of an unclean vessel? And he's saying, no. There's not one that can do that. He's speaking of our doctrine of total depravity, right? That we are inescapably, undeniably born into our sinfulness. That, that, that phrase that you might be thinking of, right? Is there any that are righteous? No, not one. That comes from Psalm 14 and that is quoted by Paul in Romans 3. That this is kind of the seminal roots of that. This is, this is a similar kind of doctrine unfolding where Job is recognizing there is uncleanness in us. Can anyone draw out a clean thing from a dirty vessel? From a rotting carcass, can you pull something out that is pure and excellent and healthy? And he says, no, there's none. He's affirming the doctrine, right, of total depravity, that we're sinners. See, again, Job never claimed to be sinless, only that whatever his sin is, God has constantly demonstrated mercy because of his faith in him. And so whatever is happening to his life, yes, this is God, but that's what I'm not understanding. It's not retribution, then what is it? Why, Lord? 
If it's punishment for my sins, I get that. But if it's not punishment for my sins, then why? As New Covenant believers whose sins are, are completely satisfied in the cross of Christ, when bad things happen to us, the idea that we would at all lean in on, you know why this is happening? Because you probably sinned. That is literally not possible. Because Romans 8.1 says, For him who is in Christ, what there is no condemnation. So either this happened to you, because of your sin, and you are in your sin, and in fact, you are not a believer, or God has sent this into your life despite the fact that your sins have been paid full in Christ. This is Job. He's not a new covenant believer, but he's getting this. He's understanding this. He is saying, I don't understand why this is happening, Lord. I know it's not retribution. I know it's not your justice for my sins. Not directly then what is this? The clean can't be unclean. So we're hopeless in terms of our sinfulness. And we have leaned in on your compassion and mercy and your grace. Verse 5 and 6. Since his days are numbered, or his days are determined, and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass, look away from him and leave him alone that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. It's an amazingly bleak look at life, but you kind of get what he's saying. He's saying, if you consider all of this, the mortal parameters of the brevity and the trouble of a life that is touched by sin, he's saying, you've already determined how long people are going to live. You've already determined in your book how long I'm going to live. He says, you know the number of months that are left, right? Some of our students have finished uh, classes. God bless them. That's probably a relief to them. Uh, the other students among us are still waiting until they finish their classes. And you are maybe numbering the days until vacation begins. This is like that, but in the reverse. He is saying God has already ordained the number of days that you have left. And if he already knows your parameters, he knows your limit, he knows when you have to get off this train, he's saying, then Lord, why not give them a moment of reprieve, of, of respite? Look away from him and leave him alone. Let, let him enjoy, like a hired hand, let him enjoy his day off. Let him take a break. It's a plea to simply say, Lord, can, can we have a moment? Can we break away for a bit, right? And we, can we enjoy um, a momentary respite um, from all the suffering that we might be experiencing in this moment? So, our hope in him looks like respite and response. It's an examination of what sin deserves and a recognition that sin deserves some things. But we thought you were taking care of this, Lord, about the brevity and the trouble of life and how difficult it is to understand how God has forgiven our sins and yet these difficult things continue to fall into the life of Job. And then he draws further and further down that rabbit hole, right? And speaks of the finality of death. Verse 7 of chapter 14. For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its root grow old in the earth, and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. 
Job is drawing from, from God's creation an illustration that he finds to be interesting. There's hope for trees, is what he's saying, right? Uh, and I didn't know this, but as I was, uh, I was reading this, one commentator noted that perhaps he has in mind in that region olive trees, which can live for a thousand years. Did you know olive trees can live for a thousand years? That is nuts to me. And then our sequoias, right, they live for hundreds of years, right? You cut them and then you can like count rings or something to add up its age. That might not be true, you know, I, I, I don't know. Right? But, but things outlive us like trees. And his point is this, that there's always hope for a tree. You could cut it down, right? but it can sprout again. How is this possible? He says, well, because its roots, even though they are old, they are in the earth. And even as the stump is dying in the soil, a little scent of water, a little bit of rain, and the next thing you know, it'll start putting out branches like a young plant again. What's interesting to us is not that illustration, right? Because that illustration is interesting because it's true. And if you, if you never knew that about trees and plants, that it looks like it could die, but because it's roots, it could come, well, then you should have paid attention in biology class. And that's not that big of a deal, right? We don't amen this. We're just like, a, yeah, amen. Like, yeah, we know that. But the question is, why would Joe bring up something like that in the midst of talking about suffering, headed to death, and getting kicked on the way down? Why would he bring up the idea of the hope of a dying tree? Well, we're going to get to that in a moment. But he wants to uh, first attach this, the idea of dying, to mankind and to human frailty. Verse 10. In juxtaposition, in contrast to the hope of a tree that is dying, verse 10 says, but a man dies, he's laid low. You put him down. Man breathes his last, and where is he? That's it. It's final. It's over. As waters fail from a lake, and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again. You hear him talking about the finality of human life. Death is batting a thousand. Minus two individuals mentioned in the Old Testament scriptures. I just realized I should make that caveat. Right, Enoch walked with God and was not. And then Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire. But otherwise, everyone else literally dies. That is an expectation that we should all have. And so even as, you know, and, and we, we do not want to be callous or, or smug about that. But even as we look at any kind of thing, you know, individuals dying of heart attacks or individuals dying of, 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 of a virus or individuals dying because they, um, whatever, because they watched the microwave cook their popcorn, whatever it is. Like if we're concerned about mortal death, the thing is, you know, the surprising thing for you might be that we are all of us going to die. It is only a matter of time, right? Death takes us all, literally, because that's how God has designed and has ordained this human existence touched with sin. There's a finality to, to, to our humanness. We will end, and unless the Lord returns to translate us, right, we will end in death. A man dies and is laid low. He breathes and it's no more breath, right? And like water fails a lake, meaning like, you know, some of our lakes, because of, you know, our drought season, our lack of rain, some of our lakes, their, their water level is getting low. Well, lakes can literally dry up into desert beds, right? 
And that's what he's talking about. If you throw out water onto your, your, your sidewalk in a hot summer day, in a matter of moments, that water seems to kind of evaporate, seek into the ground, kind of disappear. In that same way, that's what human life looks like. Just waste away and dries up. So a man lies down and does not rise again. Or does he? Job says something in verse 12 that begins to open up something that we'll look at in terms of his hope in the coming verses. But in verse 12, he says, So a man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. He's saying he lies down and there's something permanent about it. And as I said, the Old Testament saints... They seem to understand something about the afterlife, but maybe not as completely about the things of the afterlife. But what they do understand seems to be that we will die, and this death in this life is absolute and real. But there may be something more. That's why the tree illustration. Is death a final reality? Yes, for this earthly existence. Is there something more? Potentially. Because a tree looks like it's dead, and then new life springs up from it. He's developing a concept of both the finality of death and then the hope of resurrection. This is where I think his argument, his theology is so intriguing to me. Starting in verse 13. And I say hope of resurrection because initially I wanted to say the hope of renewal, but I think he's talking more, more than simply getting renewed some generic way. He's talking about life even after death. He says this in verse 13. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol. Sheol is the underworld. And, and I don't want you to get this weird, right? The, the Hebrews didn't have a, a concept of the underworld like, like Hades and, and the devil is in charge of the dead, like Hades is in charge of Hades. Is Hades in charge of Hades? That's weird, right? Let's, we won't dwell on that, right? Like, so the, it's the realm of the dead. He's saying that we will die. And he's saying, oh, that you would hide me in death. That when I die, that you would keep me there. You would hide me there. Look at the second part of verse 13. That you would conceal me, cover me, until your wrath is past. That you would appoint me a set time and then remember me. I don't know everything that the Old Testament saints believed about the afterlife, but they believed that death was not the end. At least Job believed that death was not the end. It was final. And the mortal condition will stop. But life, whatever life is, they believe that there was something more. His request, or, or maybe not so much in the form of a request, verse 13, but more of the sense of just the cry of his heart is, Oh, Lord, if you would just let me die, but keep me there until all your wrath is passed over me, then appoint a time and then remember me again, that would be hope. Job's hope is not in healing. It's not in having more children. It's not having his, his fortunes restored. It's not even in having his friends shut their mouths, right? Job's hope is, Lord, lay me down. Cover me. And in your time, remember me again. Is this possible? He's saying, oh, this is my hope. But is it possible? Verse 14 is it possible? He says, if a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. 
He puts it in the form of a question because as much as he had hoped this, there's not a certainty. He knows that there's something. He doesn't know what that something is. And he's saying if a man dies and he had just said that's a final reality, will he live again? He said, all the days of my service, and by service he means his slavery, his, his work, uh, the browbeating, the, the sweat and tears, all those days are worth it. I could wait if there was renewal to come. And that's why I'm saying he's talking about a resurrection hope. I don't think he would use that term resurrection, but it fits. Because the word that he's using for renewal, I mean, even our English word captures it. The idea is it combines absolute newness. That's come its renewal as in new, right? With continuity. There's still something of the old. That's why it's a renewal, not a brand spanking new old. It's not even a word, right? But you get what I'm saying? His point is that there is some continuity. It fits to what life could be and it's brand new for him and that life after death is what he's hoping for. Job's hope is an extraordinary hope in the midst of the the most difficult part of his earthly existence. Oh, that you could hide me in the grave, that I'd be dead that you conceal me until your wrath is passed over, then that you would appoint a time and remember me. Verse 15, you would call and I would answer you and you would long for the work of your hands. You, you catch the work of your hands to be Job's description of his, himself. He's already said that about himself earlier, that he is the work of God's hands. And he's literally saying that there would come a time, Lord, when you would long for him whom you have created, him if you have fashioned, right? You would call it, I would answer, because you would long for me. For then, verse 16, you would, you would number my steps, you would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag, and you would cover over my inequity. He says, then you would watch my steps and keep watch over where I go, but you would do it in protection, in care, and love for me. Not to judge, everything that needs to be paid in full. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag, right? You would cover over my inequity. And you see the strong sense of the gospel hope of resurrection in Job. This is a guy before the Mosaic law, understanding something about sin, God's righteousness, the rightness of him receiving right pain and difficulty and judgment. But this isn't that judgment. That judgment will still come. He will still die because he's a sinner. Even though in this life God has shown him exemplary mercy and grace and forgiveness. But there is hope that there is something after his death. That there is something after his death. A resurrection from death that will provide a salvation that is much deeper, much greater, much more satisfying than anything that this world might afford. His hope is not in a healing. His hope is not in good health. His hope is not in prosperity or posterity. right? His hope is in God raising him after final judgment to a life that is blessed and that is connected with God his Father. It's an absolute glimpse of the gospel. We're going to witness today later, right, um, a baptism service. And we're going to talk about how baptism is a symbol 
a public declaration of a, of a faith, of a life transformed by Christ. And the symbol of it is that we will die with Christ to our old nature and sin and will be raised to newness of life. Romans 6, let me read you this. Sorry, in verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He's saying some people are so wicked, they start to think that since God gives us grace, might as well just keep sinning because God, God's okay with sin. He lets it go. He says, by no means. Can we who died to sin still live in it? Now listen to these words. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Listen, the Christian gospel is exactly that. It's exactly the hope fulfilled of what Job is speaking. And maybe just out of instinct, maybe just out of theological kind of intuition, he is saying, man, I just want to die and be covered in it, be done with all that, and then Lord, the Lord would call me up and I would have newness of life. I will be raised. So we have in Christ, with all the details filled out by the time we get to Romans 6, that those who have placed their faith in Christ have done so because they recognize their sin and their need to have their sins fully paid. And only you can pay for your sins or Christ can pay for your sins. And if we have placed our faith in Christ, that means we have died the death we deserve to die because Christ has died for it. It's like we've been united with Christ in his death. But we are also united with him in the hope of resurrection. See, that's why resurrection is the validation of all the promises of forgiveness of sin. That's why the resurrection is so important. We sometimes overemphasize just his death, his sacrificial death is true. But without the resurrection, there's no evidence that that has actually occurred. The last thing, verses 18 to 22, is kind of a return to reality. That's hope of the resurrection, point E, But the final point here in his monologue is I'm still in my pain. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol was hope of resurrection. But starting here in verse 18, but the mountain falls and crumbles away and the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones. The torrents wash away the soils of the earth. So you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor He doesn't even know it. They are brought low. He doesn't perceive it. He feels only the pain of his own body and he mourns only for himself. He brings it all back to the present darkness, to the pain of the moment. And he's still struggling with this at the moment. 
But the thing that we need to catch in him is not just his gospel hope. That, that's the most important thing to catch in him because that is going to be validated. But the second thing in that moment, if you're in that moment that you need to catch from Job, is that it is okay to express that, to believe in God and not to change your theology to adjust it in a way that satisfies you because this is unacceptable. Job is not saying this is unacceptable. He's saying, I don't understand this. But I know what I know. God is sovereign. He is absolutely in control. That I trust in him. That he has been kind and merciful to me throughout my life. That there is a potential hope for life after death. And so I am just waiting to die for that hope to be realized. I want to know why this is happening. But I'm not going to change who God is. Change his goodness or change his sovereignty. I'm not going to change what I believe about him as if he is no longer merciful or compassionate. I'm going to let him know that he feels distant and and harsh and difficult and frightening. But I could talk to him because he is my God and that has never changed. That's what we learn from Job. And that's going the New Testament refers to Job as an example of endurance, right? I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will still hope in him. Let's close our time of prayer. Heavenly Father, even as we think about what faith looks like under trial, Father, help us to see that there is a hope in a God that is in control. And even if we find it difficult to imagine that God is in such control that he would pour difficult pain, tragedy into the life of a godly man like Job, even if that's hard for us to embrace, you give us freedom to speak that to you. And you're unaltered from it. Father, you are our God. And you are not safe. But you are good. And thank you that Job understands that even in the midst of his amazing, tragic, and painful existence. And that that can be an example to us who know not only what, what Job does not know then, but who has a resurrection hope in Jesus Christ now. Lord, help us to turn to Christ, to believe in something more than this momentary existence and even this momentary pain, that he is worth it. We pray these things in Jesus' name.